Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday morning. Uh, I'll do something unusual. Someone asked me, one of my friends and sponsors, I must say, to do a uh, extra podcast, I guess, on somebody who he was interested in, which was the Marzchayas, who ordinarily, well, I would hesitate to talk about, but um, it really bugged me, and I like to, um, what shall I say, people who have been sponsored in the past, I like to be loyal to them. And so at his urging, I think I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Um, uh, because, as I said before, you know, people were nice enough to sponsor my stuff. I wanted to be good with them also. Um, and uh, this is the Lando family from Yushalayim, it's Lando, and his wife. And um, uh, I, so that's who's sponsoring uh, today's uh, talk. And uh, Baruch Hashem, I have the... Next one for this week, the Parsha sponsored. I'll speak about that tomorrow, I hope. Um, next week, I don't have any sponsors. And I'm still trying to get a hold of two more lecture sponsors for my series that I hope is coming up about Israel in 1984 to 1988. But hopefully someone will step forward. Anyway, any further ado, uh, the... That's going to be about a very interesting and a very unusual person in Jewish history who they call in the Gemara Maharaz Chayas. I mean, he's written, in, he's got Hagos in the back of the Gemara. Or Tzriyosh Chayas. Uh, Chayas, even though they spell Chayot, that just means they come from a rich family where some famous lady was named Chaya, so you call her Chayas, get it? That's how it used to be in Eastern Europe. It used to have these elite families. Elite means they got money. <laughs> That's what that means. And you know how it goes in life. Lav Davka, the guy's the, the good businessman. Maybe she's the good businessman, correct? Especially, in, I've spoken about this many times. Especially in the old days in Europe, Eastern, in Europe in general, among the Ashkenazim, a couple would get married at 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, something like that. You have no idea whether the boy's going to be a jerk or not in terms of business. A lot of times, not a lot of times, almost always, even today, families with money, they try to marry other money. That's uh, in every culture. And... Uh, so it used to be in the good old days of our great, 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 great grandparents, uh, back in Europe, if he comes from a family that has money and they have a girl that has money, so we try to marry them together. And you don't know if the boy's going to be good in business just because the father was good in business doesn't hereditarily mean the son will, the son could be a jerk in business and run the whole place into the ground, the whole business. Me'edah up the girl who comes from a well-to-do family, she may have business talent. Just could be. You know, can't be sexist or something like it. It's a natural, uh, you know, quality. And it happened many times that the boy would turn out to be on nothing in terms of money, business, and the girl would turn out to be chashav. She could be a big business person and run a, a, a whole geshaft. Empires, even. And so, generally speaking, when you see fa- elite families that are named after 
ladies, that's what happened. The woman was the big hush of one. And people say, oh, she's my, my mother, my grandmother, my aunt, my, my, my great-great-grandmother. I come from this renowned woman who was a big macher in money and business long ago. And a lot of these women would endow synagogues and kolels, what they call kloys, and all kinds of things. Like It's a very interesting phenomenon in Jewish history. So our hero today, Reb Tzvi Hershchayis, who did not live a long time at all. He's a rabbi in um, Galicia, in Poland, in the 1800s. And he died when he was 50 years old, uh, which is not a long time. Uh, but he comes from one of these uh, rich, elite-type families that they used to predominate the communities. And obviously, the, 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 the big person in the family put him on the map was a woman named Chaya. The Marshal was like that, for example, Shlomo Edel's like, named after Eide, Edel. Uh, Chaiken, there are a lot of examples of that in, um, in the culture at that time. I think it's just funny. Today, well, I don't know. What do I know? Maybe there, there's these big women you find in the Hasidic world, some rich lady who's uh, running the whole show. Maybe. I don't know. Okay. Now, the reason I was hesitant is because uh, Rav Tzvi is very interesting, of course. It was a great Talmud Chacham, a big gon. Um, but, but he's a combination. Uh, listen, all I can ever do is give my interpretation. It's a combination of good luck and bad luck. <laughs> right? In life, you need good luck, but sometimes you only get bad luck. And uh, the good luck is the family was born into and the wealth and the education received. The bad luck is the time and the place in which he lived. Uh, for a firm person, the whole art in life and living in the right place at the right time, uh, as we shall see. Now, he was a Galicianer. He lived his whole life in Galicia. Galicia was the southern and southeastern part of the kingdom of Poland, which once upon a time existed and then was wiped out. I've spoken about this dozens of times. If you ever heard any of the other podcasts, you know what I'm talking about. There used to be a thing called the kingdom of Poland or the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was this giant state, which once upon a time had all the Jews in it, which was composed of Poland and Ukraine and Belarus and Lithuania and Latvia. It's a huge territory. But then in the 1700s, Shortly before our hero was born, uh, it was destroyed. Meaning, the three neighboring empires just moved in because Poland did not have an army, which was stupid. And the Russians and the Austrians and the Prussians, these are three kingdoms, empires, that are neighbors, they said, we can come in and take it over. And like Ganovim, they said, let's not fight over the spoils. Each one of us, let's agree to divide. That way you'll keep your part and I'll keep my part. And that's what they did. And so by the time all the three partitions of Poland are over, let's say by the time we get to, let's say, for example, 1800, Poland no longer exists, and the whole Medina was divided up. The area that the Austrian Empire received, Austria used to have an empire, the Habsburg Empire. Um, later it was called Austria-Hungary. At the time I'm talking about it was, was not. So they picked up as their chalik of the Geneva, the very large province of Galicia, which is in the southern part of the Kingdom of Poland. And uh, it runs like a, it looks a little, a little bit like a salami bullet, like a long one. It runs from east to west. And uh, for our purposes, it had a ton of juice. Right? And uh, this is the two main cities of Krakow and Lemberg. Krakow is the capital of the left side of the western Galicia. And Lemberg, or Lvov, was the capital of the east side.
and the east side of Galicia. I've spoken about this many times. The population was mainly Ukrainians. The upper class were Polish uh, noblemen. And the Jews were like somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the middle. And there were a quarter of a million Jews. That's a lot in Galicia, especially in eastern Galicia. So this was an area of huge population. And from the time the Austrians took over, for a long, long time, things were bad for most of the Jews. Because the government was extremely anti-Semitic. There were times they tried to reform Judaism and shove all kinds of changes down the population's throat. The whole long history of this. Um, things didn't change till around 1869, 1870, or when the Austrian government under Franciozo had a change of heart and then acted better towards the Jews. So from around 1870 to the First World War, it was good, as far as anti-Semitism is concerned. But uh, till then, it was tough. Now, I said, are here, you got to be born at the right time and right place. Nemarach Chayes is a very unusual person in many respects. He's going to be a rabbi, rabbi of a kehillah, okay? Av Basin, in the old school like I've spoken about, but he's certainly not old school. He came from a well-to-do family uh, in Galicia of an elite. So the elites at that time, when they're able to, try to combine Ketorah Gedul and Makamechon. Nothing wrong, it's very nice. So they were, by the standards of today, he could be a millionaire, but a big Talmud Chacham. There are many examples of this. And this formed a kind of aristocracy, and I spoke, I think, in the last uh, podcast about the difference between Kehillah is run by the democracy and the, versus the aristocracy. And the time I'm talking about, it was aristocratic. There were always a few rich families and stuff like that that ran the Kehillah like little Hitlers. They ran the show the way they wanted to, and the Hamon Alm, such as existed, had no say in how things are run. And just get over it. That's how it happens. Okay? So if you're a shul and you're not connected with the right person and you don't kiss up to the right one and all the rest of it, you ain't getting no aliyah, you ain't getting no kibbutz, you just, you know, you just uh, stand in the back of the shul. That really is how it was. Uh, that is pretty disgusting. That's the way it was in Klaistrow for many centuries. Okay? That's the way it was. And if you allow it to happen, it could happen in your synagogue wherever you dive today. You understand? The only difference is today, it's a freer world, so you say, I don't like this shul, I'll go make my own shul or go to join another shul. Otherwise, you gotta, you know, go along. Myma mentioned this. If you went in the 1700s, so you would find what I just described, and the Kehillahs, like in eastern Galicia and Lvov and Brody and those places, were totally dominated by these wealthy and elite families. Uh, they ran the roost. After 1772, when the Austrians took over, so now you don't deal with the old Polish government, which was very like a days ago, and therefore, quote-unquote, nice towards the Jews, in the sense of being, you know, uh, uh, not engaged. <laughs> uh, but instead, you know, you have the Austrian government, which wants to Germanize everybody, modernize everybody, for stupid bureaucratic reasons. You understand? Europeanize everybody. And they didn't like Judaism. They were uh, bigoted Catholics. And um, they definitely didn't like Orthodox Judaism, because correctly, they perceived this to be an impediment to assimilation. And so I would say from 1772, close to 100 years, there was a, a, a struggle of the uh, Austrian government, which were the rulers in the province, to try to assimilate to the degree possible the Jewish population. So I just described a very complex reality. Our hero was born in 1805 and died in 1855. So that means he's born in, and lived his whole life in eastern Galicia, 
in the area that today is called Ukraine, southern Ukraine. The big Jewish communities, and there are plenty of them, it's Tarnopol, it's, uh, uh, what do you call it, Lvov, Lemberg, it's uh, Brody. These are important towns. They had rich Jewish heritage. Bells is there. And, uh, you know, it's what it is. Now, um, because of the whole cauldron of challenges that I just described, to Galicia, especially Eastern Galicia, was a very, what's the word, lively and cooking place. Civil wars broke out among the Jews, shall we put it that way. And I'm talking about in the area of religion and and culture. Um, Because people didn't like this richy, rich domination of what everything I just described, they looked for alternatives. That's why Hasidus took over like wildfire in the eastern Galicia early on, and especially by the time you get to 1805. You see? Because if you're Hasidic, that's a certain way of saying like this. I can take the whole kill and tell them to jump in a lake. They can do whatever they want. I go and daven by my shtibel, and my allegiance is to the Belzer Rebbe or the Zizha Rebbe or whoever it is. And, you know, formally I am under the control of these richy rich guys. But other than formally, I live my life and I derive my uh, kibbutim and all the rest of it from my Hasidic co-fraternity. And the truth of the matter is like this. If you're Hasidic, you say like this. If I give my allegiance to the Rebbe, then I do not give my allegiance to the local richy riches. You understand? So Hasidus is very interesting that it arose for a whole bunch of reasons. And obviously the religious side is very important to the Ruchnius, no question about that. No question about that. But there are also important social reasons uh, for uh, the Hasidic movement sweeping the whole province like wildfire. And uh, that's one of them. That's a, that's a biggie. Because it provided alternative community and the Hasidic community, by definition, is voluntary. You don't have to become a chassid of somebody. Or you can pick your rabbi or not. And that itself gives it a certain vitality, because the community I joined, because of choice, is much different than a community, what they call institutional authority, versus charismatic authority. People prefer to be in a situation where you have charismatic authority. Let's say, for example, today, I go to a shul because I like the rabbi. No, for whatever reason, it's turned on to me. As opposed to having to go to another shul where the rabbi's a turn off, but it's the only shul in town, so what can I do? That's the, the, the difference. Um, so, the Hasidic movement uh, swept the, the population, large, large portions of it. Mamish in the late 1700s and early 1800s, when our hero was born. Um, that's part of the story. Another part of the story goes like this. The Austrian government, I see, I told you it's complex, that's why I was hesitating to do this, but I'm doing it. The Austrian government... Uh, which is pretty anal, let me tell you something, they're pretty bad. Uh, and um, they were trying to pressure the Tibur to become unfrom. And they used bureaucratic uh, strategies. For example, everybody has to go to, uh, let's say, a modern Jewish school. And they even brought in Hertz Hamburg and a guy to set up a whole bunch of what we would call modern, and therefore much, much less from schools. And the public didn't want to do it. They're from people. You got to do it. If you don't do it, you, you, you pay heavy taxes and you suffer this, that, and the other. Kids get drafted in the army. They're pretty disgusting about it. Uh, you couldn't get married unless you memorized the catechism published by um, uh, this guy, Hertz Homburg, uh, known as the leader of the Maskilim. The Haskalah appeared in Galicia, in eastern Galicia, in the time I'm talking about. And the Haskalah... Uh, kind of poisoned itself, 
because it did challenge. Uh, Notice it had a good side and a bad side. Let's put it that way. The good side was it called attention to a lot of the bad things that were going on, like the domination of communities by the Richie Riches, and uh, and also the complete lack of any knowledge whatsoever other than Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. And there, not many people were into Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. The Hamunam was pretty ignorant. So you end up, you have no um, education whatsoever. So they were always criticizing that. Um, but on the other hand, and let me put it this way, if you can agree with, as, from a Jewish perspective, you can agree with the masculine in some regards, you can disagree. That's a matter of opinion. But then they teamed up with the Austrian government to try to screw everybody and force the seaboard to go along the way they wanted to do so. And if not, they would be malshin on them and they uh, tried to get the Hasidic Rebbe's arrested. Then they imposed a censorship. The government should censor all the books that come into the community. And in other words, they really played uh, hardball in, in getting in bed with the authorities. And therefore, let's put it this way, you're hooking up with Haman to, to, in order to force the Jewish people to, to act the way you want them to act. So this was disgusting. This, this really delegitimated a lot of the Haskell and the masculine. Keep that in mind with what I just said. Moreover, the general trend of the Haskalah in Galicia was to the left, away from Yiddishkeit. Now, they would disagree, and they would say, you're wrong, and believe it or not, most of these guys in the period I'm talking about were Shomer Shabbos. <laughs> they kept kosher. But uh, that doesn't mean anything, because the Hashkafa-wise don't really believe anything. So it's like a very complicated environment. Now, so I just described a very uh, funny uh, reality. Within all this, listen closely, you had a certain element of what I would call today, in, Galiz- in Eastern Galician terms, misnagdim. Now what does that mean? These are people really from the old class. Many of them were connected with the Richie Riches, and also with the uh, learners, with the Talmudic Chachamim, who aren't necessarily rich, but very often had connections with the rich. That's how it was in the old days. Uh, and uh, so it's a very complex environment. And there was definitely in Eastern Galicia a certain class of people who, it's a class of people in element who say like this, we don't believe in all this Hasidic baloney. These rabbis are a bunch of phonies and things like that. But on the other hand, they're coming from like the perspective, shall I say, of the Vilna Gaon, you know what I mean? In other words, they're very from, and uh, the big Tamir Chachamim, on the contrary, they like the old system in which the learned are an elite, uh, connected in some fashion or with the rich, sometimes they're both at the same time. And they like, they were the beneficiaries of the old system. <laughs> you follow? In other words, this guy would get an aliyah because he's a Talmud Chacham. Maybe not because he's rich, but somebody who had a reputation of being a Talmud Chacham, and it was, you know, would get covered from that itself. So they couldn't allow really beneficiaries of the old system. Um, and included among these were the families of Mamash, the elite, which were um, the people who were learned. When uh, their kids grew up, they made it the business to give them a, a good Torah education so that they would become big Tacham later. They also were businessmen, and they were the Machers, the next generation of the Machers. Our hero was born into that family. You get it? He was born in 1805 in Galicia, probably in Lemberg, one of those places over there. 
smack in the middle of uh, of Eastern Europe, you know. And um, uh, actually, he's born in Brody, uh, which was the largest Jewish community in the 1700s. Um, Brody's like the headquarters of what I'm talking about. Brody, which is today a nothing little town in, in, in Ukraine, was once upon a time a very, very important city in Jewish history. And in the 1700s particularly, it, it could be, have been the main Malcolm tour in the world. That's quite, it, it's up there. And Brody was an elite of uh, rich families who made it their business also to be big learners. Um, and they set up, among other things, uh, for purpose for for both a combination of Lishma and Shalolishma. They set up a, a famous cola called the Kloiza Brody, which was world renowned, and that was the biggest learners. You you know, and and a Kloiza meant that you got a stipend to learn for five or ten years, something like that, and then you leave. Uh, but you're supposed to learn twenty four seven, really, except for Shabbos. You sleep in base matters. Um and this is supposed to produce the gedolim of tomorrow. I've discussed this in the past. And Nodav Yehud is famous for having been one of the guys that went through that system, but many others. So Brody had a place of high Talmudic, halachic knowledge. They also were the big Mekabalim. They knew the Arizal stuff. And uh, many of the stories of Baal Shem Tov, Baal Shem Tov died in 1760, are in Brody, because Baal Shem Tov lived around there. And his wife was from there. And a lot of his interactions, positive and negative, have to do with people in Brody. And so that's part of the story of the Baal Shem Tov days, interacting in funny ways with the members of the old elites. You know, sometimes they convert to Baal Shem Tovism, and sometimes not. And Avram Gershon Kittler was his brother-in-law, as mentioned on previous occasions. These are the circles that I'm speaking about, and that's who the Maritz Chayis was. So he came from one of these families, these highly elite families, Rich uh, parents. His father, this is strange, was a big Talmud and a big uh, businessman. Uh, in other words, a merchant. Even under the Austrians, if you were rich and you could help the economy, the government treated you very well. The 99% of the rest of the Jewish population they screwed over. But the 1% at the top, they treated okay. You hear? So it, it's strange. And his father actually lived in uh, Italy for 15 years as a businessman before he returned back and uh, had the Maritz He lived in Florence. Florence is the capital of what used to be called at that time Tuscany. If you've ever been there, it's a beautiful city. I was there. And Florence was a city with a ghetto, but a fancy ghetto. And the time he was there, do I need to go into this? The, the, the time he was there was ruled by the Grand Duke Leopold, the, the son of uh, Maria Theresa, who, who, when he was the Grand Duke in Tuscany and in Florence, was very enlightened and rather good to the Jewish population. So it's a, just an interesting situation. And uh, then he returned back, and in 1805, our hero was born, Sri Hirsch. And therefore, he's born born with a silver spoon in the mouth. And he was a big Eloy, you know, he was a, a big Balkishran. So the father, listen closely, so the father, like people did at that time, here's a boy growing up, the first 20 years, from 1805 to 1825, uh, let's say. So I remember he dies at the age of 50. So the first 20 years or so, 23 years exactly, uh, he doesn't have to work. He's a rich family, and the father sees he's a Balkishan. And so, in, like in the old school, I'll train and be a girl. He'll bring fame in, uh, to the family. Nothing wrong with that. 
and therefore he has the best tutors, and he learns up a storm, and he's a big bucky, you know, all that stuff. However, in addition to that, right, since it's the 1800s, and the father's an international businessman, which is what we call today, because if he was in Italy, that means he was doing a lot of business between Italy and Poland and Austria, you know, that sort of thing. And so he said, you know, um, the most important thing you need in Europe for business is, uh, is knowledge of foreign languages. And so he doesn't teach him Polish, which is interesting, but French, German, Italian, and Latin. Okay? Um, so this is already very unusual. A kid grows up. Listen closely to what I'm saying. Most of the day, this is the old days. Most of the day you're learning Gomorrashi Tosis and that sort of thing. But you have an hour set aside here and an hour set aside there for your French lessons, for your Latin lessons, for your German and Italian lessons. Than usual. And also, um, you know, for science and for history. History. Remember, I said you, you learn history. Now, this ain't normal. But on the other hand, from these elite families, all throughout the centuries, you had people like that. I mean, the Rambam had a secular education, for example. No, it doesn't mean you're not from. You know what I'm saying? And even though nobody advocated a secular education for Hamun Am, that would be a revolutionary move. But throughout Jewish history, the rich people and the people like that, you know, especially the guys gifted anyway, and most of the time it's Gemara, 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 you know, it's okay. And so he grew up by the time he's 20 or 20-something, 20 uh, 20-something, you know, so he was a highly educated person, very unusual, and someone who's a big Talmud Chochem, a big Talmud Chochem, right? But he also has all these uh, all this secular knowledge. It's very unusual. Now, when he was 23 years old, so he got married uh, to a rich girl, naturally. And uh, by the way, I want you to know, growing up learning in Brody means you're interacting with some serious Talmud Chochem. If he, you know what I'm talking about. I think you understand what I'm saying. Here's a boy who's 10 years old, 12 years old, 15 years old. He's an Eloy. And so you, tell, so you you go on Friday to talk to the Rav. Uh, you tell on Thursday to talk. You know, he had uh, Ephraim's armor, Magos was in Brody. The, the Mat Ephraim, you know. Uh, all these are geniuses, you know. The uh, the, the Rav of the city is the grandson of Nebi Huda, Belozer Landau, who I think wrote the Yadat Melch, is now right on the Rambam. A uh, very interesting person. Um, I mean, they had some... When I, I'm trying to think how to put it. You mainly interact with the few intellectual giants that are your madrega, and so you live a highly elitist life. I don't know if you see the people around you. You see? The average schnook out there, ah, you're born a silver spoon in the mouth in the social sense as well as the intellectual sense. And if he had lived 50 years early in the 1700s, he would have been like a Nudab Yehuda, a Frim Zarmer type. There were a lot of uh, Chaim Sanser type. There were a lot of these people running around Brody in these places. These were the Jewish elites of yesteryear. The problem is that he's living in the 1800s. And the 1800s times are changing. Now, when he was uh, 23 and got married, or maybe got married earlier, the question becomes like this. What's the future? Now, he wasn't the business type. That's not how he was educated. Perhaps if the father had raised him to be the business type, things would have been different. But he raised him in a very intellectualist kind of environment. Nothing wrong with that. He'll be a famous rabbi. As a matter of fact, let's put it this way. You and I would never have heard of the father if not for the famous son, Maritz Chais. Yeah, so he'd be a famous rabbi. Uh, you're 23. 
Where is it going? Now, ordinarily, a guy leaves yeshiva in those days. Uh, if you want a career as a rabbi, you have to start as a dayan somewhere and uh, put in your time. Like we would say in America, you start with a small shul and then you get a bigger shul and finally you get a bigger shul, if you're lucky. But if you're money, if you got money, you can leapfrog the whole system. So the father bought him a, a position in Zalkiv, which is an important community not too far away from Brody. Um, Zalkova, they call it. Um, I mean, I, I realize it's not well known to the people listening to this, but if you know anything about Polish Jewish history, Galician history, Zalkiv um, was uh, where they had a printing press for a long time. It was a central Jewish culture, even though it was a, not a large community. And um, let me put it this way. If this wasn't bought with money, no 23-year-old guy is going to become a rob in Galicia. You understand? But if you're an elite and you got the cash, it can happen. And I want to make something clear. He was a bar hockey. Even when he was 23 years old, you know what I learned? He got Paskin. The guys he's friendly with are like Rafaim Zimmer Malgo, you know, and, uh, and the Heller. I mean, he, he's, he's up there with, um, with the elite. Okay? Now, here's the thing. This would be 1828, when he's 23 years old. At that time, living in Zalkiv was, in fact, the head of the community, who probably is the reason and probably got him elected, was this well-to-do guy who was the leader of the whole Haskola movement in Galicia, maybe in Eastern Europe or certainly in Galicia, Nachman Krochmal. There's another name that you know, and he's the Aviavos of the Haskola in... Um, in Galicia. Now, um, as I said before, the Haskalah movement was in a militant phase in cooperation with the authorities to try to get the masses to be enlightened in, in opposition to what the masses wanted, but the masses are asses, they don't know anything. And the great enemy were the Hasidim. This is how the fights went on. There's a famous book, yeah, a little bit biased, by Professor uh, Rafa Mahler called Hasidism and the Jewish Enlightenment, which has all the wars between the Hasidic movement and the Haskalah movement, with the Austrians in the middle during the first half of the 1800s. This is exactly what it's all about. Because Mahler himself, who was not from, was a Marxist, came from such a background, Polish Job. And therefore, it's, it's, it's Kachzeh. Now, Nachman Krochmal was a guy from Eastern Europe who was very smart. All these guys are Shammar Terminists. Uh, in practical life, they're observant Jews. But... And the classic style of the Haskalah, he was interested in more than Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. That's the constant and basic definition of a Damascus. It covers a lot of, uh, uh, of ground. You could be a firm guy and be and just be interested in more than Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. Alternatively, you could be non from guy and be not interested in Gemar at all. You know, that sort of thing. Now, Nachman Kachman was self-educated because the definition of a Damascus is never went to school, self-educated. By that... That standard, by the way, the Marx guy is a little different because he actually, he didn't go to school, but he had tutors. So he had formal education uh, in, in uh, the equivalent of, of, a, of a school education, which is most unusual uh, for a Godel, especially in the 19th century. Now, when he came to be the new Rav over there, he met this guy, and Menachem Krochmal, they must kill him, call him Ranak, you know. Um, so, he was fascinated by modern European culture. He was a firm Jew, fascinated by modern European culture. And he read up a Welt. He taught himself in classic Moscillic style, you know, German and French and things like that. And then he read up all the books that were at that time. Now, 
The Haskal is a rationalist movement. It believes in the rational interpretation of Judaism, and it was committed to the notion that the rational interpretation of Judaism is the correct one. The Rambam got it right, and everybody else got it wrong. That's more or less a Moscalic approach in the 1800s. Uh, and in addition to that, at the time I'm talking about the early 1800s, uh, Western culture was uh, really feeling its oats because by the time you get to the 1800s, you already started the modern scientific revolution. Uh, you already started what they call positivism, the feeling that, uh, let, me, let me put it this way, by the time we're talking about the world of science had finally gotten its act, to, act together with the uh, uh, empirical verification and the scientific experiment with the, with the hypothesis and the testing and all the rest of it. And it was already starting to do the extraordinary things that we've all seen it do in the last 200 years. Science has make a continued revolution. We're so used to it that today, you know, the newest invention, which happens all the time, doesn't blow us away. We expect science to do anything. Matter of fact, one of the interesting things about the corona era in which we're in at the moment time is people are saying, where's science? Where's the vaccine array? New? No, it's already been since March. By now, science should have um, been able to exterminate the, the corona. Yeah. Now, uh, this feeling of heady accomplishment uh, spread even into the social sciences, even things like history and philosophy. That you can, instead of being speculative or whatever, you can make it scientific. And in the case I'm talking about, Nachum Krochum was like the pioneer in all this. So, uh, first of all, you had the modern uh, system of philosophy of Hegel, the famous German philosopher who sees uh, a progressive form of history with a certain dialectic. I don't want to get into this too much. I'm not going to be a crash course on courses, but um, Hegel has a very distinctive way of understanding the progressive form of history. Karl Marx was one of his Talmudians, but so were many others. And this guy was actually fascinated by the writings of Hegel. And the point of matter is nothing is uh, static, everything is fluid, and it's constantly changing, because everything calls up its opposite. And then the clash of the two produces a thesis, antithesis, and a synthesis. And there's a spark to it, no question about it. Uh, and also in the area of history, um, the in Germany, they had already come up, mamish at this time, with what we call historical methodology, which means historicism, the modern discipline of history. The study of history, as you and I understand it today, which is based on an assembly of facts and transparency with the footnotes. You're supposed to be transparent and you're supposed to be open to criticism and all the rest of it. You welcome it. And you're trying to verify your facts best as possible. Um, this already start, This really started in the early 1800s. Mom's in the time of Marx Reis. In the University of Berlin with Humboldt, then Ranke, famous names. Not to you, but they're, they're famous names. And uh, what they said was like this. You make a statement about the past, you got to back it up. If you can't, can't back it up, then be Model Amos. You understand? There's no time on you. That's be Model Amos. So you tell me there's a guy called Henry VIII. I have the right to ask the question, how do you know? And don't say, are you questioning me? Uh, you can't be personal like that. You told me there's a guy, Henry VIII. So what do you do? You go to England, you find the records, you find the birth certificate. I'm serious. You find all the other records. And here it is. Here's the evidence. Clearly, he was a king from 1509 or whatever to 1543, and he had six wives and blah, 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 and here's all the proof. And then I say like this, okay, if you say, if you have a proof, then you have a proof. And the guy will say like this, 
Henry VIII didn't like uh, chicken. How do you know that? Well, I, Libby, I'm really okay. Fine, just just say you don't know. You think, you know what I'm saying? So, in other words, the beauty of the modern historical methodology lies in the transparency in which you say certain things are backed up with evidence and certain things are not. And that me, the reader, now I see what's going on over here. You know what I'm saying? Now I see that this is stuff that is factual, at least factual in the sense you have written records for documents. There's nothing wrong with questioning the authenticity of documents. That's another mahalak, no problem about that. Nobody gets angry at each other. We're just trying to find out what really happened in the past. Now, in the period I'm talking about, the discipline of history was early years and was heady with success. People thought they found old evidence. Now they know exactly how the past was. In later generations, we became much more sophisticated and skeptical about the historical process of what they call the crisis of German historiography in the late 19th or 20th century. But in the early 19th century, people discovered the new way of doing history, and now we know what the past is really like. And it was like a liberating experience, because until now we were fed a combination, a cocktail of uh, fairy tales together with facts. You know, we call art school history, you know, part true, part not true, and what the heck, a Hasidic tale. Now it's not like that. Now we're going to see what really has happened. Uh, that's what Nachman Krochma was reading. And consequently, he began an intellectual trend, what we call the second phase of the Haskalah. The Haskalah was a movement, if you understand it historically, that came in three phases. First, second, third. The first came along and then died out. The second came along and then more or less died out. And the third came along and sort of died out. And today you don't have Haskalah anymore. But it went in the 1700s, 1800s. The first wave was what we called the Berlin Haskalah with Moses Mendelssohn. It had certain characteristics. It mainly was involved with uh, just doing, not just Gamar, 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 you know, and interest in Bible and Diktok and uh, a more openness to world, to your knowledge of European culture, that sort of thing. The second wave of the Haskalah, which is what I'm talking about, and the Marxist was part of it, was um, this preoccupation with history, uh, the study of Jewish history. Understanding what something is is if you understand its history. So if I ask you a question, for example, who are you? You could give me some stupid scientific answer. You say, I'm a creature with two eyes and a nose and ears and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> epi you know epidermis, all this stuff, which is true, but that's not what I'm asking because that's not interesting to me. I'm really saying, tell me who you are, where you're from, Give me your history, right? Who are your parents? Where'd you go to school? Where'd you grow up? Where are you today? I'm asking your past. Uh, so, from a historical perspective, what is Judaism? Well, so you have to. You can only know by studying Jewish history. Don't tell me uh, this rabbi said this, that rabbi said that. I got to know what the past was, and then I'll see what Judaism is today. That's the historicist approach. And uh, Nachum Krachmal was the leader of this, and he eventually put his ideas into a famous book called Mar Yasman. And he argued that Judaism has been through a continual process of development. Uh, it's also the age of uh, nationalism, and so but the Jewish people constitute a nation, they have a certain national development, and uh, a lot of the ideas you think are from Sinai are, are, are not. Now, again, I'm not giving me a crash course in this stuff. I simply tell you that these guys were observant, but their hashkafas were not, Okay. Uh, because if you really scratch down, do you really believe in Tarmacena and things like that? They wouldn't like the question. But if you really force them, they say, well, well, you know, well, like that. 
Uh, on the other hand, they're fascinated with Shas and things like this because it goes to tell you what the development of Judaism was in the time of the rabbis of the Talmud. And this is when you began, th- and these are the guys that began the Jewish history books in the last 200 years. Um, Krachmal and, and Tlomi Huda Rappaport. Sheer. Some of the Tzos. They're the ones who started writing the, the history books. Now, let me just make a general observation before I proceed. The problem with all this lies in the following fact. You're tying Judaism to whatever is currently the fashion. Uh, to Krochmal, who was, was a brilliant person, he sees Judaism in Hegel terms. But a generation later, nobody gives a darn about Hegel anymore. No, we don't view this kind of philosophical approach as being sound anymore. And so what you ended up doing is dooming Judaism because it's a Hegelian. Uh, and s- similarly, these other guys, you know, they, they, they uh, describe Judaism in terms of early 19th century historiography. Well, guess what? That stuff is, is out of fashion today. Uh, and so the description that you have of Judaism is no longer held in the academic world. It's not a time to anybody. That's how academia works. We try to push the, 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 the ball always forward. And so if you say, this is always the, the conundrum of the rationalists and the historicists. You say, now you understand what re- Judaism really is. No, you don't. You understand it by the terms of what's fashionable in the academic world at that particular moment. But, you know, a generation or two later, things are going to be radically, radically different. But they didn't see it that way. And many people don't. Usually you're so caught up in the times in which you live, they think now, today, we've reached Amos. Even though most of us should say, in 2020, it's nothing like it's going to be in 2040. It's definitely nothing like it's going to be in 2140. You see? And, uh, but anyway, that's not what they said. Now, the reason I went through all this is the following. Our hero, from 1828 till around 1850, that's the ma- most years of his life, right? From the time he's 23 to the time he's in his 40s, and remember, he died at the age of 50, was the Rav in this town, okay? Um, he buddied up with Nachman Krochmal and other guys from that circle for the simplest reasons. I wasn't there, but I can totally see it. It's a machai to talk to these guys and learn. When I say learning, talk to them in history and philosophy. Who else are you going to talk to in town about this? Now, he's a Rav, and he can pass in the showers, and he can preside over the basin, and he was a genius. All that's true, no question about it. And uh, he could be a darshan, and is highly educated. That goes without saying. And uh, you know, again, it's somebody who knows his way through shots backwards and forwards, and also the midrashim, you know, medishrab and all that stuff backwards and forwards, and Tanakh with the mafreshim back and forth. He probably was a fantastic speaker. On the other hand, who do you talk? Who do you have good time talking to, smoozing in, um, shall I say, intellectual matters? So Krochmal was famous. He used to walk around like. Socrates. He would walk around town and outside of town in the forest with boys from all over Galicia who were interested in this, and they would talk in Hilchus philosophy and Hilchus history and things like that. And Marzki um, was the rabbi of the town. Now, listen closely. This, had he lived in another time, in another place, you just say it like this He's an interesting guttle. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, He's a regular guy. He later wrote Charles and Schubert, things like that. But he's an interesting guy because he actually had a wide education. We've had Gedon, we have, in Eastern Europe, too, who, for one reason or another, 
happened to be, be knowledgeable in this area, that it happens. But uh, in his case, it's the middle of a of a culture civil war because the uh, people, let, let me put it this way, the masculine, whatever they said, the whole way they're pushing Judaism is in an unfirmed direction. Well, even though they would deny it. And uh, Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport was a big Talmud Chacham also, and the number one Talmud of Krachmal and the son of law Kitsos, Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport is the one who published the, the Avner Elohim. Say again, son of law Kitsos. So, uh, and people like that, I mean, they knew how to learn, but I'll repeat. Do they really believe in Tormi Sinai and so forth? And the Torah Shalopah? Well, well, let's talk about the weather. <laughs> you know, like that. Uh, now, the Maritz by hanging around them, being very friendly with them, so the question is like, what does he really believe? What does he really believe? After all, you are so knowledgeable in history, and you know all the tinies against the old-fashioned Judaism, which is true. Uh, what do you believe? Now, he was a from guy. But on the other hand, he was open to and interested in the Haskalah. The second wave of the Haskalah movement, which we call the Haskalah of Galicia, was indeed focused primarily on the study of Jewish history. And that means historical criticism. In other words, let me put it this way. If you want to get down to it, how do you know the Torah is true? See what I ask? Okay. How do you know? How do you know there was a Moses? Prove it. Uh, you won't find a piece of paper in the Middle East that says there was a Moshe Rabbeinu. Avram Yitzhak Yaakov Moshe and Dabur Shlomo do not exist in history. Now, maybe tomorrow the archaeologists will find something that's always like that. It's possible. No question about it. But Ad Khan not. And from a strictly historicist point of view, if you can't prove it, then you can't say it happened. You can just say, maybe, I believe, possibly. Right? That's very different than lifting up the Torah and says, It's a different thing. So, um, the, the, the Hamonah was not stupid, okay? Despite what the elites thought. And the main uh, uh, force against the, this Haskalah movement um, did not come from the elites, who, you know, opposed them, didn't like them, but the elites were tiny. Uh, it came from Hasidus, Hasidic movement. Uh, in the Hasidic movement, by definition, you've got a big following, you have the masses. The Hasidic movement is defined by discipline. The Rebbe says, do something, you do it. You ask no questions. Um, and the Rebbe's, I'm talking about in the early first half of the 1800s, were absolutely opposed to Haskell. They started something totally trafe. And uh, if there were Hasidim living in your community and the rabbi or anybody was considered suspect, they'd make his life miserable. They put Pashkvilim all over the place. They'd break the windows. They'd interrupt the speeches. You know, the Hasidim, when it comes to dirty tricks, you can't teach them anything. Uh, they're, the, they're the kings of dirty tricks. And they would say like this, it's a dirty trick Lashem Shamayim. And there were many cases in the first half of the 1800s. These are famous cases where somebody was a rabbi and he was suspected of being a left-winger and the Hasidim drove him crazy and made his life miserable. Right? And they had a grand old time doing it because then it was a holy war. I'm not saying they're wrong. Right? The Shlomo Yehuda Rabbi Shir, tell me the rapport, very famous Zaparsha. He became, got himself elected rabbi of Tarnopol and the Hasidim, woo, they put the uh, uh, tar on his seat in the show. Uh, they go crazy, right? 
And uh, the maze life miserable. He had to get out of there. Now, our hero was like that. He's the rabbi in Zolkova. He did it because his family's rich, and they're, and in other words, and the Kehillah leaders, you know, are not Hasidic, the opposite. And, you know, he's got the job, and he certainly came to be seen as a big Talmud Chacham, but why is he budding around with all these guys? And why is he so interested in history? And, being a 19th century person, he uh, was just interested in what's going on in the world. Why are you interested in what's going on in the world? Why do you buy newspapers? Why do you read newspapers? Why do you get Haskalah journals, like we'd say today? Why do you get non magazines? Okay? Like I said, I just want to see what, what other Jewish historians are writing. Why are you interested in what the, what the non are doing? You get it? And, you know, he wanted to say Palgin and Debor. You know, in other words, I'm interested in this, not necessarily what I hold, but I want to see what's going on out there. I'm intellectually curious. I want to see what's going on out there. Agrabah. Maybe I want to fight against them. And people say, we have anything to do whatsoever. So you have a basic uh, battle, and you could call the Marski as having what you call a modern Orthodox attitude, and the Hasidim having a Haredi attitude. And the modern Orthodox attitude, especially in the 1800s, would be, Adrab, uh, if somebody says something to get some from, uh, argue with them. Make the case against them. You understand? If uh, somebody writing in a Moskilic magazine that the Book of Esther is not true, Bring rise that it's true. You know, like that. The Haredi argument, the Hasidim said, I guess, what are you gyrus them bechlal? Have nothing to do with them. The hell with them. They're going, they're, you know, they're, they're going the, uh, what do you call it, the Leber Shachas, and we're going to go away. Don't worry, in a generation they'll be gone and they'll be able to remember them. That's a Haredi attitude. Now, by the way, they weren't wrong. You never heard of Krochlal. <laughs> right? You never heard of most of these guys. Um, but that's not who our hero was. And so the result is that he was a rov of a, he was a av basin, he was a rov, you know, he did the gitin, he did the kashras, all that stuff, in a kehillah in eastern Galicia. Um, he corresponded with all kind of people. Most of it was in learning with big Talmud Chachamim, but a lot of it was also in history and philosophy and current events with a whole wide variety of people, including the leading Maskilib in Germany as well. He became uh, correspondent friends with Rappaport, with uh, uh, what do you call, Abram Geiger, who was the leading reform rabbi in Germany, who was a big historian, and others. Now, that means that he basically said, I guess, I am Geiris de Haskala. I, I disagree with him on the non from parts. You know what I say? The Hasidim hated the fact that you're Geiris de Bechal. That's what it is. That's what, and, and, I, like, This is my uptouch. You understand? Know like, why are you going to Bechlau? You have nothing to do with them, and they can all go to the devil. Uh, because the whole field of history is uh, poisoned by the presuppositions that these guys bring to it. They're coming from a hostile point of view. So why should you buy a non-from history book and write a couple of Haggos to correct them? Don't have anything to do with them altogether. Now, I'll tell you something interesting. That was the approach of Samson Rifle Hirsch also. It's not what you think. Hirsch never got a PhD, went to college, but he, 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 he left early in grad school to become a chief rabbi of Medina. But his approach, because he also lived the same time, just lived longer. Demaris Chais was 18, 50, 1805 to 1855. Hirsch was 1808 to 1888. <laughs> Look at that. They, they overlapped. And 
Uh, and Hirsch is coming, of course, from Germany, a very different thing, he had a, a secular education. But when it came to what we call today Jewish history, by which I mean not Jewish history in the sense of what happened to the Jewish people in the past, but the culture, academic culture of Jewish history, in which you're reading books and the, and the fields defined by the books and the articles of people who are coming from an outside perspective, and shall I say, an anti-from perspective, that Hirsch says, I, I'm not Goris Bechlau. You understand? Uh, because I, I, I distrust the whole field. I repeat, not because you don't believe that the Jews don't have a history, because obviously you do, but I don't like the way the whole thing is done. It's, it's interesting, right? And Hirsch is eloquent about this. Uh, now, Rav Hildesheimer was a different. Rav Hildesheimer was more like the Marzchais. But, here's the thing. As I said before, if Rav Tzvi Hirschchais would have moved west and not been in eastern Galicia, which is an area totally dominated by the Hasidim in terms of the masses, his life would have been different. In other words, if you're, if you're in point A, you want to move to point B. If in point A, you're in the extreme left of Yiddishkeit, and in point B, you're in the extreme right of Yiddishkeit, you'd rather move in point B. That's what Hildesheimer did. When he was in Hungary, he was considered on the extreme left of the spectrum. He didn't like that. When he moved to Germany, and he was the same guy with the same Ashkafas, but by the standards of Germany, he was the extreme right. Then he felt more comfortable. So Marzchayas, in the course of his life, did try to move to other places. I remember he tried to get to Prague. Uh, and he would have been uh, Tugapas for Prague because there was no Hasidim over there and Prague was already very schwach and by the standards of Prague he would have been a very from guy. If you look at a picture of him, you can see he's dressed like a classic rabbi with the long pays and all the rest of it. You know? Uh, and he had this rich cultural background. He would have been a good fit in Prague or in Germany or someplace like that. He would have been a very from guy. But where he was in Eastern Europe, in Eastern Galicia, by standard what's going over there, uh, he's considered on the extreme left. And the Hasim never did trust him. Okay, they never did trust him. Now you have to understand, it's just interesting times. You had Misnagdim in Lithuania, and you had Misnagdim in Galicia. The difference is, the big difference is, in Lithuania, the Misnagdim kind of won. By that I mean, the majority of the public, from public, sided with them. So if you went to Lithuania, there were Hasim, there, there were Lubavitch, for example, others, Slonim, there's what they were, but it's a minority. The Hamunam, especially in the 1800s, were non-Hasidic from Jews. Uh, by con- so there's what you call a misnagdic position. You know, you, know, you, don't, you don't believe in Hasidism. If you went to Galicia, there were people who were not Hasidic and were opposed to Hasidic. So I don't believe in all this stuff. They were like a drop in the yam. You know what I'm saying? I'll give you an example. Or Shlomo Kluger or somebody like that or the Sholem Meshav that I spoke about. You yourself may not be Hasidic, but you can't go and uh, con- uh, condemn anybody. I mean, everybody in the town is Hasidic. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, you know, you're like standing in the room and saying, I'm right, everybody else is wrong. It's stupid. So you simply had to go along. This is uh, famous. There was always, down to the Holocaust, a class of people throughout Galicia who were, you know, old school uh, I used the word misnag, that might be the right word, but they really were non-Hasidic, Talmidi uh, and all the rest of it. But, uh, you know, the but the Messias is that the Hamon Am, including most of the Talmidi Chacham, are, are Hasidim. You understand? This is the world of the Maritz Chais. Now, um, 
you know, if, if you don't mind, you don't mind. If you do mind, then get out of there. He found himself living all of his life in this area, and therefore wherever he went, um, he, he, he was uh, always uh, criticized and attacked by the Hasidim, who considered him that really he's not from. Now, he sought a validation. No, it bothered him. He wasn't the type of person who said, I don't care what the Hasidim say about me. I don't care what the others say about me. He did care. The reason is he was a from guy, although it's clear he did share a lot of the hashkafas of the masculine, but not the unfrum ones. <laughs> but the Haredim said, really, you do share the non-frum opinions, you just write from in order to keep your job. So basically, uh, you're trying to have a foot in both camps, which is true, and you can't. You hear what I said? So, you can't be uh, a Haredi and a Chassid. I'm sorry, a Haredi and a Moscow. Uh, you got to choose one camp or the other. Uh, this wasn't who he was. He had your pullings in this direction, pulling in that direction. Now, what's interesting is that he turned for validation. People should back him up. He's a from guy. I remember he made himself to be a correspondent, friends with the Hassam Sofer, the Pressburger Rav, who died in 1839. So, notice the first 10 years of his rabbinate from 1828 to 1838, the Samsara was in his old age. This new rabbi was a young guy, uh, and I remember they corresponded a lot in halachic matters. So it's very interesting. He had a whole thing about, I mean, it's, for me, it's interesting. I'm a Cohen. He had many interesting questions about whether a Cohen can be a doctor, you know, or if a Cohen's already a doctor, can he go visit a sick house? It's, it's interesting, Shilas, the correspondence between the Maritz on the one hand and the Samsara on the other. And um, it's clear that Chassam Silver basically put out the word, leave this guy alone, he's from. But you want to know something? That didn't do anything, because if you're really Hasidic in Galicia, in the 1800s, the Belzer Rabbi said he's straight. So they say, oh, I, the Chassam Silver said he's from. That's because the Chassam Silver doesn't know him, and he doesn't understand what the real see is. He's a god, all he means well, and all the rest of it, but he doesn't understand how poisonous this guy really is. That's how they did it. So he couldn't get himself the real validation, you understand what I'm saying, uh, that he wanted. And... Um, Therefore, got very complex. Now, the fact is, if I can use this terminology, he would be on the extreme right of the Haskalah movement. <laughs> okay? He was fascinated with Jewish history. Uh, he was also quite aware that the Iker attacks of the Haskalah movement were in the Torah Shavu'al Peh, um, challenging the Gemara and things like this. Like I said, do you really believe in Torah Sinai? And even if you say you do, do you believe Torah Shavuot Pemi Sinai? You get it? That's a separate issue. Do you believe it really in Torah Shavuot Pemi Sinai? Now, these were precisely the things that Krochman and the others criticized and attacked. Uh, the early uh, Haskalah in Galicia was precisely about, what's the right word, deconstructing uh, the notion of Torah Shavuot Pemi as something that Hashem really said to Moshe and was transmitted more or less, you know, down the ages, it ends up in the Gemara in some fashion or another, because that's that's what they say, right? In some fashion or another. This is really what a lot of the um, Maskilic, uh, early Jewish historians, uh, were into. Here, let me change this here for a second. Okay, I'll pick up from here. Uh, I had to switch this. The um, point I'm getting at is that 
that the Galician uh, Haskalah, and that was the first wave of Jewish history, was very preoccupied by trying to understand the period of the Chazal and the Nevi'im. Uh, because from a Moschilic perspective, from a 19th century historical perspective, these are people who, who transmit the tradition. Did they get it right? Did they get it wrong? Did they make it up as they went along? Did Adraba, did they go and faithfully just pass on what they did? Other than the Messiah questions. And uh, and a lot of what they wrote, you know, what they would criticize this point or try to critique that point, the Maschais is part of that. But he's always presenting the from view. You know what I'm saying? So he'll have books about the Nevi'im and books about the Torah Shabbat Peh and the transmission of the Chazal. He's got that uh, Mavola Talmud and all these sorts of things. In which he said, no, 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 no. This guy said this and this guy has this kind of, but he's wrong for this and this reason. And if you're Medai, you know, and what do we mean by a Derisa and a Drabonan? What's Xera? All those sorts of things which preoccupied academic historians or muscular historians in the 19th century. Today, I can tell you right now, from the perspective of the current state of Jewish history profession, this stuff is old hats out the window. Because, um, let's put it this way, you're trying to prove things from Talmudic citations and from a modern, if you want to be totally modern scientific about this, you can't trust the Talmudic uh, documents to tell you something about uh, real history. That's the attitude nowadays. They can just tell you what the document says. You know what I'm saying? That's from the modern perspective. Again, from a professor's perspective. So just because it says in a text something happened to Rabbi Akiva, that doesn't prove Rabbi Akiva existed. And it's written much, much later and doesn't prove it's a true, accurate thing. So don't be medaic from one Gomorrah or this and that and the other to try to tell me, now, now you know what really historically happened using the methodology of modern history. Shine. Uh, but in the 19th century, they didn't see it that way. And so he is a member of the fraternity of the Jewish historians. Uh, and... Uh, but he's always writing from the from perspective. Now, that didn't help with the Hasidim and the others. They say he's just doing it to cover up his real tracks. <laughs> you understand? And he said, no, no, this is what I really believe. And it's always in a bad position when you have to sort of, I'll tell you again, any from person who's generally from feels uncomfortable being attacked from the from the right. And he certainly did. So that's why I say he was born, he had good luck and he had bad luck. He, he was born into a rich family, he had a good education, he had a silver spoon in the mouth, uh, the, the the position of rabbi was uh, giving him at a very young age as a birthday present and all that sort of thing. And he was uh, gifted. And again, you know, he and, and he knew Shas and he has a ghost on the Shas and all the rest. Although a lot of his ghosts, if you look in the back of the morning, if you ever take the trouble to look, are historicists, aren't they? You know what I'm saying? No, he's, he's interested from a historical perspective. Nothing wrong with that. Matter of fact, to whatever degree there's any kind of muscular historical sensibility to reading a Gemara Shitosis, you'll find in the in the Hagos of Mars Chais. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, and he got in because obviously, you know, when they printed the Shas, his family must have, uh, you know, had protection or something like that. But, uh, but whatever the case is, he was made to feel very uncomfortable. And um, as I said before, if he tried, he was always looking for other positions. It never worked out. It never worked out. He wanted to go to Budapest, he wanted to go to Prague, I guess he wanted to go to other places, and never worked out. So he's had to spend the bulk of his life, now he didn't know he would die at 50, he had to spend his uh, 20s, 30s, and 40s in this town, Zalkiv, in uh, eastern Galicia, surrounded, I'd say, by Hasidic masses who don't trust him. Uh, it's, a, it's a funny kind of existence. At the same time, he's corresponding with uh, 
two sorts of uh, sets of correspondence. One was Gedolim, writing in, in Torah matters, like the Chassam Sofer and many others. On the other hand, uh, he's corresponding with all the historians or would-be historians of Maskilim of 19th century. So he's a unique figure. You don't have anything like this whatsoever. And uh, all the people suspect, you know, I think the, the, the appreciation of him as somebody who had a foot in both camps is, is accurate, actually. Like, don't make him bad. Not at all. But in Galicia, at a time when there was a war raging between the Frum and the non Frum, a war, and the Hasidim were using all the powers of the Hasidists, meaning they have a mass disciplined force, they provide passive resistance, they just blindly obey what the Rebbe says. That's the best way to deal with the authorities. And then you have a guy like this, who's, you know, a rabbi, of course, but he's highly educated, and he thinks the Hasidim are all wrong. And he had an elite attitude. I remember he wrote a letter to the Austrian government saying the Jews should all become farmers uh, because that was a, a pet project of the Haskalah. They thought it would be better if the Jews go back to the land. We are naturally a nation of farmers back in the time of the Bible. And the fact we've been put in the commercial pursuits has ruined our character. It's a classic uh, modernist uh, masculine mode. Now, truth in matter is that's disgusting because basically like this, I'm not going to be a farmer, but I hold you should become a farmer. You know what I'm saying? He's not going to be a farmer. He's not telling his kids to be a farmer. The Moskilim didn't do it. The rich people didn't do it, but they wanted the Hamonam to do it. <laughs> but you can't help. When you remember the elite, you look through things through elitist eyes. That's as they get this, whether you like it or not. Look through elitist eyes. And um, therefore, he presents a very, com- as far as I'm concerned, a very complex figure. Um, as I said before, he um, you know, was always writing on these historical subjects, as well as the Torah subjects. He has Shalos and Shubas. People knew he's a big Tamachov and they wrote to him, you know, he has Shalos and Shubas, no question about it. He's not a Mekel. You know, he's regular in the middle, sometimes Machmer, sometimes Mekel. A very interesting Shubas, by the way, you know. Uh, and, but the problem is that these historical writings are like timepieces. I read him long, long ago when I was young. I don't know, you know. Always very logical, but it, the, the, the style never appealed to me. That's why I was uncomfortable doing my size. The style never appealed to me. Uh, but one thing is clear. Um, when the Reform Movement started, which was in the 1840s, so that would mean when he's about the age of four, 35, 40 years old, he was one of the big opponents of the Reform. <laughs> because now your mom is taking hashkafishes and turning into halachas or anti-halachas. And he wrote big things, the Minchas Kanos, whatever, he wrote all kinds of things against the Reform. But, and he was a big opponent of them, from historicists as well as religious reasons. The problem is, it didn't mean nothing to Reformers, because they say, like this, you're quoting from the Gemara, you're quoting, we don't believe in the Gemara, we don't believe in the Bible. You know, what are you going to say to somebody like that? And, again, the Hasidim said, he's just covering his tracks. Really, he holds like them, but since he's living among us, so he's got to fake it. And he could never shake that. And so we find, um, towards the late 1840s, when things really got super bitter, uh, in 1840 was a revolution in Galicia, as well as all around the world, all throughout Europe. The revolution in Galicia was against the Austrians, against this and that and the other. At that time in Lemberg, which is the capital city, the imam set up a reformed community, reformed Judaism. Uh, and uh, I told you some other time, not long ago, there was a big reformed temple, reformed temple with an organ. In Lvov, in Lemberg, in the middle of, in the very heart of Hasidic land. And um, 
things were the the the, the feelings were so uh, intense on both sides. The non from tried to screw up with the from and and uh, close down the rebbe's and all this. The Hasidim murdered the reform rabbi. It's a famous story. His name was Kohn, Abraham Kohn. They put the poison in his uh, soup, and he his whole family had uh, dinner and they all died. I'm just saying it was hot, bitter times. So my schayas, um tried out, and he said, "I got to get out of here." And very interestingly, he he secured a uh, position to be the rub to move from Zalkiv to uh, Kalish, which was already over the border into the Russian Empire. Eastern Galicia is up against the Russian Empire, and I guess he figured that in Kalish, which is a bigger community, first of all, he probably had plans for becoming a rub of a big town, you know, uh, so. In Kalish, um, his plans were, uh, it was a bigger community, and um, we figured out a new start. Well, not really. They had plenty of Hasidim in Kalish also. Same thing. They drove him crazy. They criticized him. They say he's not from, and all the rest of it. And he was there for a while. Now, we'll never know what happened because a cholera epidemic hit, and, uh, and he and his wife died from it. It's a whole story. They went to a, you know, to, to a spa. The bottom line is, um, they died. Right, I mean, he left to go to a doctor. It doesn't matter all the details of how he died, and so he's only fifty, and therefore he left behind him a ton of writings, and uh, which you can read today, right? If you've ever seen, they've translated long ago. You've seen this around; it's in your show somewhere. A student's guide, introduction to the Talmud, something like that, which is a Talmud. Somebody translated in English in uh, Northern Ireland, I think it was back in the early nineteen fifties. I've seen it around for years and years. It's long, it's the Hasidic, I mean, it's the Moschilic style. They they don't believe in Mikatsar. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're prolix. Uh, you know, it's good stuff, but I, I I find it very boring. That's who I am. Right? And uh, what you have, therefore, is the Shita of the Marzchayas on this issue, or the Shita of Marzchayas on that historical or other issue. <laughs> and therefore, he merges it as, as a figure, which I said before, was kind of, uh, had the bad luck not to find his mokum. Now, 50 is young to die. Maybe he would have lived another 20, 30 years, and maybe he would have moved somewhere, and like Hildesheimer, found a place where he's the from me, and where it worked out better, and, you know, he would have had, had a happier life, and maybe in a more productive life. I don't know. I want to be very clear about this. But he, but he was, uh, he stood out like a sore thumb in Galicia. You know, in 1846, the Austrian government played real hardball, and they said, nobody can be a rabbi unless you have a college education. And, you know, so by passive resistance, all the rabbis said, we ain't taking no college uh, courses. And the whole thing kind of was on the books, but died. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, had mass resistance. And uh, especially the Hasidic. But the Chaya said, fine, I'll take a CLEP test and uh, get, a, get an MA degree. That's what he did. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? By him, it was not a problem. But the others looked at him like, you're weird. Like, why, why are you even going for that? Why don't you join the others in passive resistance? And he said, well, you know, I can, why not? <laughs> you know? Uh, you see what I'm saying? That it's the difference between him and the others. He got an MA from a CLEP test. You know? Because he knew, he knew the secular stuff. Uh, he did. He was highly educated by the standards of the 19th century. Um, and by the rabbinate in Galicia, he was radically highly educated but it's a it's not a plus if you uh live in that environment 
so I close this down by saying the Maris Chais, therefore, is a, is a Godal. And as they say before, any new Shas, and he's got the Hagos in the back of the Gemara to prove it. And uh, he wasn't posted, he got the Shalos and Shibas to prove it. And he lived in a place that uh, had he been a generation earlier, things would have been very different. And possibly, if, I don't know about a generation later, Galicia was not, Eastern Galicia, Hasidic land, was not the place for Galicia. You understand? And it goes to show you the old elites had difficulties in adjusting himself to the new reality. In places like where he lived, down to the First World War, you had these, as I call them, Nisnagdim, Tamir uh, Chachamim, but it wasn't, it wasn't the right place for them. You understand? It wasn't the right place for them. Uh, and, it's, and, it's, and it just goes to show you, they say, Hakol Trichon Mazel, I feel safe to show you, I would say, Hakol Trichon Mazel, I feel Godel Ador. You know, you got to be in the right time and right place for your specific kochas to be used in such a way that it comes out best for everybody concerned. Anyway, that's what I have to say in the subject. Have a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com dot rabbi david